Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Therefore, by killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you and were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you who are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Please take your scriptures and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. In our text this morning, if you were following along, you saw the mention of these words, circumcision, uncircumcision, blood, and Israel, among other words. And that can seem very foreign and distant, even brutal, and it could leave us feeling disconnected, right? And there's no, there's no like meme or gif to help us understand Ephesians 2, 11 down to 22, Um, And this is why many will, with itching ears, Paul says, will go and find teachers suitable to their own desires. But what he says is that in the last days, people will not endure sound teaching. So what we try to do here is we do expositional preaching where we're looking within the context at what this passage is saying, what it meant to the original hearers, the original readership, and how it applies to us today. And that's going to take a level of endurance, right? Because there are people who will not endure this kind of teaching, but there is benefit for it. So this does have relevance. For example, when you read, when you read these verses, here, here are some of the problems that continue to afflict humanity that are discussed in this text. Alienation, division, and name-calling. That's, that's what, why the terms circumcision and uncircumcision were being used. Can we even imagine for a second a world that does not need borders or militaries or police or background checks or passports or law enforcement or prisons? 
Can you even imagine a world like that? It's difficult to imagine because we live in a sort of a worldwide cycle that is pervasive of these things. Greed, covetousness, hate, revenge, deception, racial tension and oppression, political strife, religious animosity, and military conflict between nations. Let me just give you an example of that last category. Armed conflicts happening right now as we gather that illustrate the insidious condition around the world. The Syrian civil war, the Afghanistan conflict, the Yemeni crisis and civil war, the Mexican drug war, and the Boko Haram insurgency. I mean, that's out there. Now, if you just bring it to where we live, there's unrighteousness in workplaces, friction and disunity among family members, and evil and divisiveness within the church. James, he, he really answers his own question. This is what he asks. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The world, if you look at it this way, the world is really a magnified picture of what is going on in individual hearts. There's conflict in the heart. There's war in the heart. There's greed and discontentment and covetousness right there within the heart. Jesus said in Mark 7:21, from within people's hearts come all these evil things. So the answer, and I think one of the questions that we will answer, one of the questions that arises out of our text this morning is this. Will there ever be peace? If you noticed in the text from verses 11 down to 22, that word is used four times. Will there ever be peace? And the answer may surprise you. In Isaiah 9, the prophet identifies a male child, but he does so, a human male child, but he does so using divine titles. So listen to this. For to us, a child is born. That means he's going to be human. To us, a son is given. He will be a male child. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And listen to this last title, Prince of Peace. This child, after he grew into a man, said this, however, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. So that should surprise us. He says this, Would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. He says in John 14, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He says in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So the ultimate answer is yes, there will be peace, but it will not be found where and often how most people are looking for it. We're going to get the answer in Ephesians chapter 2. Now the structure of the second half of Ephesians, if you're open there, look at Ephesians chapter 2, and I want you to compare verses 1 to 10 and 11 to 22. We're going to look at this in two sections. 
In chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, if you remember from last week, you will see the hopeless situation. You were dead. You were spiritually dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. If you look at Ephesians 2, the beginning of this next session, section, verses 11 and 12, you will see another hopeless situation. Just glance down, let your eyes like look over those first two verses, verse 11 and 12. If you go back to verse 4, after the hopeless situation of verses 1 to 3, you will see hope. And you'll see it by these two words, but God. It's hopeless, but God intervened. Look at verse 13 in the second section. After the hopeless situation of verses 11 and 12, what does it say? But now something happened. Something's different. And then you're going to see, if you look at the first section, verses 4 to 10, God's power to transform. And note specifically in verse 9, the word created. Something had to be recreated for life to come out of death. In verses 13 to 22, we will also see God's power to transform. It moves from the individual to the corporate, or if you would, the sort of the single person to a group. And you will see God's power to transform again. And look at verse 15. You note the word create. So these things are really mirror images moving from a singularity. You were dead to a plurality. Now both become one new man. Okay, so that's going to be very important for us to understand and not get lost here. So this is how we're going to understand this section this morning. First, what we were. And I can say that because the majority of us in here are Gentiles. Okay, and that term is going to be used. That simply means we're not fully Jewish. What we were. Secondly, what God did. And third, what we are. Let's look at the first section, chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. What we were. And this is what we were. We were separated from God. It explains our deprivation, our distance. Look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. Okay, pause right there so we don't get lost in sort of the technical words. That simply is a blunt racial and religious description for Gentiles by Jews. By the way, who's writing to this church? The Apostle Paul. He's Jewish. The Ephesian church is primarily majority Gentile. So he's using sort of in-house terms and letting them know, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called by the Jews uncircumcision, by what is called circumcision, that's the Jews, again, highlighting race and religion. But look at what Paul says next, which is made in the flesh by hands. It's an external sign. Now, the sign of circumcision can be found all the way back to Genesis 14 and Genesis 17 with the Abrahamic covenant. It's important for what it stood for. But now Paul is like adding this. An external sign accomplished by human hands, which should have been from the heart symbolizing covenant with God, became a mere ceremony of pride. Look at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time. And now Paul launches into four descriptions to explain our situation. 
you were, verse 12, separated from Christ. See, the Gentiles were not directly given the promises or the hope of Messiah in all of the covenants. They weren't directly given these promises that that God is going to send a Messiah, deliverer, rescuer for you. So they were separated from Christ, the Messiah. Look at verse 12 again for the second description. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Gentiles had no right to citizenship among the Jewish people and therefore were excluded from the benefits. Look at the third description, same verse. And strangers to the covenants of promise. See, they were Gentiles were not directly nationally included in the Abrahamic promise of God's blessing and protection. Yes, in Abraham, all the nations would be blessed, but but also through that Abrahamic line, there would be a specific people. Nor did Gentiles know who these promises ultimately pointed to. I mean, even if you go back and remember the the Ethiopian in the New Testament. Driving back from Jerusalem, he had already been there and he's reading a portion of Isaiah. And God sends Philip, the evangelist, to pull his chariot up next to his. And of course, he discusses, what are you reading? This is what I'm reading, probably Isaiah 52 into 53, that section. And he says, do you understand who you're reading about? And he says, how can I unless somebody explains me? And a Jewish evangelist explains to this Gentile who Jesus Christ is, and he believes in the Messiah and is baptized. But, but the majority of Gentiles had no idea who these promises pointed to. And look at the fourth description, verse 12 again. Having no hope and without God in the world. So having no understanding of the promises of the Messiah rescuer, they had no hope in the world. That's a realistic, though dark picture, much like Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. So if the problem, and you can answer this because that will move us into the next section. If the problem is distance from God, what is the solution? If we're separated and without hope and far away, then what is the answer? Nearness. Closeness. Reconciliation. And that can only happen because... Because we're enemies of God. We're children of wrath. That's what we saw in the first part of Ephesians 2. The only answer then is that somehow we are no longer enemies and we are reconciled and enjoy peace. And that's exactly what God did. So this is the second big idea. Look at verse 13. Note what Paul says in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near. See, that change in proximity is a catalyst for hope. But now signifies again the intervention and gracious initiative of God, similar to 2 verse 4. He says, in Christ Jesus, identifies once again, as we saw in chapter 1 and the early part of chapter 2, that it is in Christ. That is the sphere of blessing. You who once were far off have been brought near. How? And if you miss this, you may miss eternity. How were we brought near? Because God said, I'm just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to worry about it anymore. Everybody's okay. I'm just going to gift the world with universalism. Everybody can come to me on their own terms. 
It doesn't matter whether my justice is satisfied or not. It doesn't matter whether my character is impugned or not. See, God doesn't do that. And this is going to help us understand the exclusive message of Christianity. We are brought near specifically by the what? The blood of Christ. Hebrews 9.22 Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no other way. There is one way to be reconciled and enjoy peace with God. It is exactly what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, that He is the way, singular, and no one goes unto the Father except through Him. And so as Ephesians 2.18 now says, we have access, access to the Father as children and heirs on terms of peace because of what Jesus did. We have access to one Spirit to the Father. Now, if you look at verse 14, starting in chapter 2, verse 14, the theme of peace will dominate the rest of this section, both explicitly, and I'll show that to you in a second, by, by using the word peace, but also implicitly with terms such as unity, destruction of division, destruction of hostility, access, and reconciliation. But look how it says it explicitly. Look at verse 14. Tra trace these with me. For he, talking about Christ, is himself our what? Peace. Go down to the latter part of verse 15. In himself, one new man in place of the two, so making what? Peace. Look at verse 17. It's used twice. And he came and preached what was his message characterized as? Peace. To you who were far off, who's that, by the way? Gentiles. And peace, same message, to those who were near. And who's that? The Jews. The specific case of making peace, preaching peace, being our peace, that Paul mentions is breaking down. Look at verse 14, because it's an interesting phrase. Breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, most likely, this refers to, if you, if you understood the, the temple and the design of the temple, there was a barrier that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Israelites. Now, it is said, and archaeology actually supports this, that there were signs in both Greek and Latin warning Gentiles not to go any farther into the temple precincts under the penalty of death. It's fascinating that we have an example of this and it involves, listen to this, this is actually beautiful. It involves Paul, a Jew who's a missionary to the Gentiles and an Ephesian. Isn't that interesting? Let me just read the passage to you. Acts 21. The Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, by the way, he was allowed to be there, he's a Jew, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Not like, Friendly, they're grabbing him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Just blunt nationalism, division and hostility and barrier. Moreover, listen to what they charge him with. Moreover, he even brought Greeks, Gentiles into the temple and has defiled this holy place. 
For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. They're beating him to death. The only thing that saved him was that he was arrested. Okay. That's how serious this tension is. So when we read this and we're like, in Christ's body, through his death, he removes this dividing barrier, this wall. It is a huge deal. Contrast that with Jesus bringing peace. And what was the purpose of that? Look at verse 15, sort of the middle part. Actually, let's go back to the, the, the earlier. It says that not only did he break down the dividing wall, but he abolished. Look what it says. The law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Let's just make that simple. This was probably laws that regulated and excluded Gentiles. Those are now those are now done. As in the first section of chapter two, I mean, how do you change that? How do you remove that barrier and that hostility? Well, you've got to bring in peace. And that's going to involve creation, the power of creation. And it's interesting that that word is used again. Look at verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man that's neither Gentile nor Greek. One new man. It's not Jewish. It's all in place of the two. So making peace that that idea of that creation language. Do you remember that word create was used in the first section where God had to bring life out of death? Now he's bringing peace out of what? Division and disunity and a barrier. The purpose is developed more. He's, he's making one new man, look at verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. And notice this term. Thereby killing the hostility. Peace is both constructive and destructive. That is why law enforcement and military intent on keeping peace are armed. They don't just have whistles. There's a destructive element in keeping peace. Do you know there is a destructive element in Christ bringing peace and he had to kill something? He killed the hostility. That's what it says. That's used together with the word reconcile up earlier in verse 16. And that term reconcile means to bring together again and in order to bring together. And you can start making the applications in your own heart and in your own relationships. But in order for him to bring two parties together, something has to die. And it's the hostility. We can make a, a general application, and that is this. If our churches, if this church is still divided in the slightest way along racial or cultural or ceremonial lines, the apostle would say that our understanding of the gospel, our understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ is at least suspect, perhaps even totally invalid. Because Jesus died to remove this divisiveness and this barrier. Look at verse 17. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. This is inclusive of Jew and Gentile. For through him, through Christ, we both, both Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. There's a beautiful picture of this when Jesus Christ died. You remember what happened? There were several miraculous signs that accompanied Christ's death. There was supernatural darkness over all the earth. An earthquake happened. And there's something that happened inside the temple. Do you remember this? That temple veil, that temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. That is significant. Because what that is saying now is that the Jewish ceremonies and the Jewish priests who are watching over those ceremonies are no longer needed. There is direct, everyone now has direct access to God. It's not simply a Jewish high priest one time a year that gets to go behind the veil. The seemingly dirtiest, most foul Gentile who believes in Jesus can approach God directly. How? Through His Spirit. That's what the text says. In Christ, through the Spirit. This language, that, that preaching peace, is taken from Isaiah fifty-seven nineteen. This is what the prophet says. Peace, peace to the far and to the near. See, this was God's plan all along. Says the Lord, and I will heal him. You know, this is precisely the conclusion that the apostles came to in Acts 15. If you remember, they gathered for a conference in Jerusalem. And the question was, what are we going to do with Jewish, with uh, Gentile believers? They were in a predicament because they were tempted to want to force them to become Jewish Gentiles. You remember this? And this tension and this conflict arose. Peter stood up and he said this. God made, this is Acts chapter 15. God made no distinction between us, Jews, and them, Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Listen to what he says. Just as they will. And the issue was settled. There were only certain sort of certain requirements, but the decision was a Gentile does not need to become a Jew to become a Christian. So our problem was distance from God. The solution was nearness. And Jesus is the only one who can reconcile us, bring us near. And that brings us to sort of this final big idea. We saw who we were, what God did through Christ, and now what we are. And this will be verses 19 to 22. If we were to just put it in one word, so we were, we were separated, that's the first point. We were reconciled, that's the second point. And now, true reconciliation will show in the fruit of unified. We are unified together. Do you know unity illustrates, like nothing else does, God's power to transform us into a dwelling place for Him? Unity of culture, Color, class distinction. This is why divisiveness in the church is so wicked. Because of how it spoils and ruins the picture of what God did. What God formed us into. Paul describes in beautiful, three beautiful images here who we are in Jesus. Look at this with me. The first image he uses is found in verse 19. And he just says, fellow citizens. Okay. Mark that, remember that. 
He uses another image, another picture in verse 19 as well, and we'll just call that a household. So you have citizenship, you have family, and then verses 20 to 22, there's a third image that is used, and it's the idea of a building. And you'll see all these terms that talk about building. There's foundation, there's cornerstone, we're being built up. So all those have then implications. Now remember, preceding this, preceding citizenship and family and building, I want you to note two small words that are used four times each. There's the word one, and there's the word both. Okay, so go back to verse 14. I know we went into the final section, but let's look at this. Look at verse 14. Again, trace these with me. He has made us both. Do you see this? Verse 14. One. Plurality into singularity. Look at verse 15. One new man in the place of what? In the place of two. Look verse 16. That he might reconcile, bring us back together. That he might reconcile us both, there's that word again, to God in one body. Look at verse 18. We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So if we just take these images, citizenship, family, and building, I just want, to, I just want us to see and land on these three implications. Number one, acceptance. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, distant foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You don't have to to answer this question, but have you ever been picked last for a sports team like at recess? I have. You know what kind kind of feeling that brings in your own heart? It is not acceptance. Like they're even torn. There's only one left and they're like torn. Who gets them? Right. Right. And this is this is an experience that's almost universal. For a moment, set aside the politics of the illegal immigration issue and ask yourself this question. Why are so many people seeking to enter the United States? Just why? What is it that people are looking for? What they're looking for is something better, something safer, something more prosperous, something where they can raise their children. Now, I know there's there's a lot of crooked, evil people who have different purposes, but I'm just talking about the families that are trying to get in. And the ultimate sign of acceptance from a citizen standpoint, if you are if you are a stranger and you are far off, what is the ultimate acceptance of coming in and being accepted by that new country? Citizenship. Citizenship from a country they want to make their own. And here's what we need to understand. In Jesus Christ, you are fully accepted, welcomed, and offered a forever home. You already have citizenship with all the other saints, guaranteed in heaven if you are in Christ. Let me illustrate it this way. I've got three passports here. All three of these belong to one of my children. Okay? The first one, they all look the same on the front. And it says United States of America. And it's great when you've lived out of, out of 
the country for several years and, and you put this in a safe and you've been gone for three years and you come back in and you pull this out, the welcome that you receive at Customs and Immigration. Because it says on the front, and it stands out among all the other passports that I've seen, Passport United States of America. Now, inside this one, the first passport, there is a picture of an infant. Six weeks old. We had to get a birth abroad certificate for him. Then we had to try to get his passport because he cannot leave the country. Well, he can leave the country, but he will not be able to go into the United States of America without a passport. So the first passport, picture of an infant, issue date November 15, 2001, six weeks after he was born, expiration date November 15, 2006. Inside, he has several visas for Kenya. But if you'll notice, and you might not be able to see that, in huge bleed-through marker, all caps, it says what? Canceled. So this is invalid. It's just a keepsake. I have a second passport. Inside, there's a seven-year-old boy. It's loaded with visas. We did more traveling. Visas, Zambia, Kenya, other countries. This allowed him to return into the United States with no difficulty. This is also invalid. Okay. I've got a third passport. Inside, there's a 17-year-old man who looks pretty sharp, actually. This is not invalid. It is valid. He's already been able to go into Israel and into Canada. And the important part about that is not just getting in, but, but what? Coming back legally. But this one, too, has an expiration date. Okay? It's still valid. Citizenship is acceptance. When you, when you return to your country, you get in a special line and you are greeted. And with very little hassle, you are brought back into a home. You are accepted. It's as though, if you think about it spiritually, in the passport of your soul, you already have a visa stamped heaven. It's already there. You're already a citizen. You, you, know, you haven't gone to the, you know, the entry point yet, but you have a visa stamped heaven. And guess what? Your passport is good for what? How long? Eternity. There was an issue date. The day you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the day He saved you, there is no expiration date. You have citizenship in heaven. Listen to what Paul says to the church at Philippi. He says this, But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, from that citizenship, practically we're here, but from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Acceptance. Look at verse 19 again. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Citizenship leads to the next image and implication, and that is security. Look at verse 20. Built on the foundation. Now notice the integrity of the building. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is a fulfilled prophecy of Isaiah 28, verse 16, which says this. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. 
It is precious. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. I love that phrase. Whoever believes need never be shaken. Jesus Christ is safe to build on. Jesus explained this ultimate security in his Sermon on the Mount when he talks about two men that went to build, really two groups of people, wise people and foolish people. And he said this, that wise people, Matthew 7, verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Because it had been founded on the rock. Two groups of people built. Each house looks fine in good weather. Both the wise and foolish hear the word of God. Both chose a foundation, both built a life, both seemed okay. As long as there was no storm, but the storm came. The storm is inevitable. Because it is the storm that will test what you built on. There are many storms in life that test... But Jesus seems to be referring to the final storm of judgment that tests perfectly and finally. And eternity for each category of people depended on something imperceptible. What was it? The foundation. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 3.11 to another church. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we have already laid, Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus is the only foundation that will never fail when the rains and the floods of judgment come? Look at the final word. You have acceptance, you have security, and the third image is one of growth. We'll get to this more in Ephesians 4, so we're not going to belabor this point, but let's just read it. Look at verse 21. In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. By the way, he's talking about Jewish believers, he's talking about Gentile believers, and we are now being grown and built together. We, we are the temple. In him, verse 22, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let me just read you a quote from N.T. Wright who says this. The closing verses of the chapter take one of the central symbols of Judaism, the temple, and turn it inside out. The temple in Jerusalem was not only the religious heart of the nation and the place of pilgrimage of Jews throughout the world. It was also the political, social, musical and cultural heart of Jerusalem, as well as the place of celebration and feasting. The reason for all this was, of course, that Israel's God had promised to live there. It was, many believe, the place where earth and heaven met. But now Paul is declaring that the living God is constructing a new temple it consists not of stones, arches, pillars, and altars, but of human beings. It is the new humanity. It is the one body. It is that which is now reconciled and living in peace. Final quote, final application before I invite the music team forward. Richard Koken, in his commentary on Ephesians, wrote this. So next time you attend your church... However ordinary the people may seem, however unimpressive the building may look, remember the three glorious spiritual dimensions of your church. You are welcomed into the precious family of God, so love those people deeply. You're being built upon the foundation of the Scriptures, so listen to the teaching carefully. 
and you're being constructed as a dwelling of the Spirit of God. So be holy in the way you behave. Your local church is a gathering of a new humanity, the temple of the living God, the only local building that will last forever and is a wonder in the heavenly realms. Let's take a minute to reflect on how we are living this out, how we are living in peace with one another, living in reconciliation between one another to reflect to this community and the world what God has done in our hearts. I'll invite the music team forward now. We'll take one minute of quiet reflection. Then I will pray. Then we will sing a hymn of response.